You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, so uh, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 51, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, how many of you have, maybe in your childhood growing up, and we've got some young people in here, how many of you have ever read like a choose-your-own-adventure story? You know, like the books where you get to the bottom of the page and it says, if you want to do this, go to this page. If you want to do this, go to that page. That's what we're getting ready to do. Because <laughs> I don't know exactly how this is going to go down, but I wanted to ask Mala to come up. If Mala would please come up. Oh, I'm going to have to pick somebody else. Mala, you're going to want to come up. No? All right, man, I was really hoping for that age demographic. Um, Keith. <laughs> All right, uh, no, Keith, sit down. You're too old. You're, you're, uh, you're too old. You're too old. I'll give you. I'll give you a. I'll give you a cookie later. Um, okay, Grant, come up here. I know your personality a little bit, so maybe. Uh, sure, you can give Grant that microphone. Okay, first off, Grant, I want you to tell the crowd that you have no idea what's about to happen. Do you know what we're about to do? Okay, so this was not set up. This was not planned. Uh, so I got a question for you. Turn, turn the microphone. Is it on? Okay. All right, I got a cookie right here. It's a, re- it's a good cookie. It's not the regular. It's the chocolate in the middle. It's a real Oreo. Um, so here's the deal, okay? I can, I'll give you this cookie right now. You can have this cookie. Or you can wait until the service is finished, and I'll give you two. So you can have this cookie right now that you see, and you can eat it right now. Or you can wait till we're finished, and I'll give you two. So I want you to tell everybody here what your choice is going to be. Wait. You're going to wait for the two cookies? All right, you can go sit down. Thank you, sir. And so we have chosen our own adventure. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you have chosen, Milo? Would you have took the cookie now, or would you have waited for the two cookies? What do you think? Yeah. That's impressive. That's good. That's impressive. Later, yeah. Well... I'm going to pray and we can be done. <laughs> no, no, no. No, so I had, I've heard in the past, and I used that example in class uh, quite a lot, that there was a study done at one time that was very similar to that where they um, you know, present to the kid, Here, here's the cookie, and you can have the one cookie now, or you can wait an hour, and you can have two cookies. And so they did that study with uh, a handful of children, and they followed them throughout the rest of their life to see, um, you know, how the, how they approached life and how they how they were successful, were they not successful, and with the whole idea of delayed gratification. And it and turns out, from what I have read, that uh, you know the kids that that were willing to wait and get the two cookies tended to be what we would deem more successful in life, because they were willing to see beyond the next five minutes, right? But most of us, you know, we choose the one cookie now. I want the one cookie now. And so if we think about it, you may be like, well, what does that have to do with anything? But I, th- I think that that test can illustrate on some level our relationship with sin. And uh, do I want what I want right now, regardless, and do I want it so bad that I'm willing to take it, do whatever I have to do, serve as my own functional God to get what I want right now, or am I willing to wait for what God has for me? Do I understand the promises of God and what awaits me eternally? And am I willing to live according to achieve that goal? Or do I just want what I want right now in the next five minutes and I'm willing to do whatever I got to do to get it? Because in a sense, that's what sin is, right? And so we make, we make the mistake of chasing after our desires, what we want at all costs, as opposed to chasing after the things of God. And, and again, part of that faithful life, part of waiting for the two cookies is 
I'm chasing after the things of God because I know the reward that I have in eternity forever and ever and ever and ever. Right? And it's really a bad illustration, and we'll talk about it again at the end, but it's really a bad illustration because we're not talking about two cookies. We're not even talking about the whole bag. We're talking about case upon case upon case upon case. So many cookies you can't even imagine. Right? You can't even wrap your head around the concept of eternity. You know, you think about forever, and then you've got to think about forever some more, and then forever some more. You can't even grasp it. Your brain wasn't created to be able to even grasp what eternity really is. And, and yet, if we choose to follow and chase after Christ, then we're blessed forever and ever and ever and ever, more than you could ever imagine. In, in Philippians 3, 8, Apostle Paul, he, he said, basically, in a paraphrased version, that I consider everything in my life, the good and the bad, everything, complete garbage outside of knowing and following Christ. So he laid his desires aside to chase after the things of Christ. He even considered all the blessings that he had in the short term, in the material. They don't even compare to the blessings that I'm going to have if I chase after Christ. Last night, me and Charles went out and ate a, a dang good hamburger. Uh, but I was talking to him on the ride back, and, and he reminded me of Peter when he was walking on the water, when Jesus asked him to walk on the water. And so Peter saw Jesus, and Jesus said, Come on, Peter. And I don't think Peter thought that out very well, but he just hopped out of the boat and went. And what happened was Peter began to walk on the water. It's remarkable. I mean, think about you walking on water. That's pretty crazy. But, but quickly, Peter became focused on everything else, on the wind, on the waves. And what happened when he did that, he took his eyes off Jesus, and that's when he began to sink. And the reality of the situation is that we're no different. I'm no different. You're no different. And when I begin to take my eyes off Jesus... That's when we find ourselves in trouble. So this morning, what I want to do is try to accomplish two, two different things. The first is, I want to encourage you to play the long game. I want to encourage you to chase after the two cookies, right? To maintain your focus on Christ. John 3.16 tells us that all who believe in Christ and follow after Him will have eternal life with Him. And there's no greater reward than that. That is life as it was originally intended to be lived. It's what you were designed for. But too often we become distracted, and I think that Satan's greatest tactic is just distraction. He doesn't have to turn you into the axe murderer. He's just got to distract you and take your eyes off Jesus. That's all he's got to do. And too often we, we fall victim to that. That's what Peter did. That's when he began to sink. Ephesians 4.1, it says, Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Peter's talking, I mean Peter, Paul is talking to the believer. He says, you were called to live life a certain way. You were called to chase after Christ. And so I want to challenge you this morning, that's step number one, I want to challenge you to chase after the things of Christ. Walk worthy to your calling. Your calling wasn't to chase after the one cookie, the one desire right now, right in front of you. That wasn't, it's not what you're called to do. You're called to chase after greater things. The second thing that, that I want to do this morning is we have to recognize the reality that, that we fall short, right? Scripture makes it very clear that we're all sinners. We all succumb to sin. So when we do, how are we supposed to respond to it? What, what am I supposed to do? When I do fall short, what am I supposed to do? What's my response supposed to be? And this morning, we're going to look at David in Psalm 51 because he provides us with a model that we can follow when we don't meet God's standard. Before we get there, we've got we to gotta do a little background work, okay? And the first place we're going to go is first Sam, or 2 Samuel chapter 11, because we've we got to set the scene here. So I'm going to read you 2 Samuel 11. We're going to read quite a bit this morning. Just bear with me, but I think it's important. It says, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from uncleanliness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David that I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, 
When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David that Uriah didn't go home, David questioned Uriah, Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he didn't go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah on the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, When you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say your servant, Uriah the Hethite, is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger reported to David, The men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hethite is also dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this matter upset you, because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. So the purpose of reading that whole chapter is you see the story of David as he falls into sin with Bathsheba. He's chasing the one cookie, right? He sees right in front of him what he wants in that very moment, and he does whatever he has to do to get it. And I want you to notice a few things from, from chapter 11. The first is that very first verse. It says, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It says very clearly, this is the time of year then the king, when the kings go out to war. But what did David do? He didn't go. So there's a lesson there to learn that when I step outside of what God has for me, I'm going to run into trouble. It was David's time as the anointed king to go to war. And instead, he stayed at home and sent his men without him. And what happens is David falls into sin. In verses 2 through 5, you see his initial sin. So he gets up, he's, he's walking around. It's, it's a lot like, it's probably a very bad analogy, but... You turn on the TV and you just start flipping channels. You got no purpose. You're just wasting time. Nothing good is going to come of that. You're just asking for it. Right? And David's strolling around. He's not doing what he was supposed to do. He's just killing time and he runs into trouble. He spies Bathsheba and the wheels start turning. He's the king. He's got the authority. He can send the messenger. He can tell her to come and she can't refuse. Everything is in his favor. He sees what he wants, and he's willing to do whatever he's got to do to make it happen. And so you see that he falls into sin. And then in verses 6 through 27, the rest of the chapter, you see David's additional sin. So here's another lesson for you. Sin, when it's not recognized and dealt with immediately, snowballs into other sin, and it becomes magnified. So David not only sins against Bathsheba, but now he takes it to the next level, and he has Uriah killed. I mean, it says very clearly, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send Uriah to the front line. Not only send him to the front line where he's probably going to get axed anyway, I want you to send him to the front line and then I want you to back off. In other words, he might have just said, Why don't you, I want you to kill him. 
I want you to have him killed. And so that's exactly what happens. And what we see is Uriah, that's exactly what goes down. Uriah goes to the front lines. They surge. He gets killed. The army is successful. They come back. And now David can claim Bathsheba as his wife. Because in his, his motive, right, in the back of his mind, he's like, I can, I can make all this go down and it can all be okay because I can get her husband out of the way. And make it like he never existed. I'm the king. She'll be forced to be my wife. And I can have what I want. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what all sin is. Is I want what I want. If Bathsheba had been designed by God. If that was God's plan for her to be David's wife. That's what would have happened. But that's not what happened. And so essentially what David does is he turns to God and he says, Listen God, I got a better plan than you. And I'm going to make my plan happen. Because I can be a God too. Watch me. That's essentially what David did. So we see David's sin there. And then when we go to the next chapter in Samuel in Second Samuel 12, the first seven verses, we see how this sin is dealt with by a friend of David. It says, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would drink, eat from his cup, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, You are that man. So we have an interesting story here. We've seen the sin take place. We've seen seen David take this sin to the next level. It says very clearly at the end of chapter 11, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. And now we get Nathan, this prophet and friend of David, that comes to David and calls out his action. And it's interesting how Nathan does it. Nathan tells him a story. He just tells him a story. He said, hey, David, I got a story I want to tell you. Tell me what you think of this. He says, there was this rich man and this poor man. This rich man had the largest flocks that you could ever imagine. But this poor man didn't have anything except one lamb, one small lamb. And that lamb, David, that lamb meant everything to him. He raised it. He grew it up with his kids. He gave it a name. He fed it. It slept with him. It's basically a family pet. It's all he had. And so this rich man has another wealthy man come to town. And he wants to treat him right. He wants to be hospitable. But even though he's got this entire large flock, all that he could choose from, he refuses to take one of his lambs and prepare dinner for this guest. So what he does is he goes over to this poor man and he takes the only lamb that he had. And that's the lamb that he prepares so he can be hospitable to this guest that he has from out of town. Completely crushes the, the family. Remember, I mean, it doesn't say that in here, but if he fed it and it drank out of his cup and he slept with it, I guarantee it had a name. <laughs> I mean, they knew that lamb. It was like a child. It was like, it was like, it was like the dog. If you want to ask Charles a story later, it's like the, it was like the dog that accidentally ran into Charles's van and the lady lost her mind because it was like her child. That's what this lamb was to this poor man. And the rich man took it. And and so Nathan looks to David and he says, We think about that, David. We think about that situation. It says David was infuriated. He was angry. He says, I'll tell you what I think about it. That guy deserves to die. And not only does he deserve to die, he needs to buy four lambs to replace the one lamb he stole, and then we need to kill him. Don't lose sight of the fact of how remarkable is the actions of Nathan here. 
Because it's very easy to read this passage and to lose sight of the fact that Nathan knew very well who David was. He knew that David was the king. He knew that if he walks in and tells this story and David doesn't like it, all that has to be said is take this man away. Take him away. Kill him. How dare he come in here and say that to me? It's all that would have had to happen. And yet, what does Nathan do? He says, I see what's wrong. I know that the Lord sees it as wrong. And it's got to be dealt with. And I'm going to deal with it. Regardless of the cost. We, we read in Esther last week, very similar situation. Esther goes in. King doesn't like what I'm going to say. It's the end of Esther. Nathan goes in. If David doesn't like what Nathan says, it could be the end of Nathan. But Nathan says, I see sin and it's going to be dealt with. The, the first thing, so we're talking about what, how do we appropriately respond to sin? And I got seven steps listed on the board. You can, you can write those down later. But the first one is sin's got to be dealt with. Sin's got to be dealt with. Nathan recognized that. He said, I see it in front of me, and it's got to be dealt with. Regardless of the cost, it's got to be dealt with. He looks at David, and he says, yeah, David, that's not a good story, is it? And that guy's not a good guy. But guess what? It's you. You're the guy. Now, the interesting thing about Scripture is that we get, we get the complete story and you get an inside look at what's going on in the heart of David. Because if we go over to Psalm 51, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, what you get in Psalm 51 is essentially a journal entry from King David. So we've seen how Nathan responds to sin. I'm going to deal with it. And he confronts David. But the question is, how does David respond? So David's confronted. How does he respond to what Nathan charges him with? And that's what we see in Psalm 51. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely your desire, you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So what you see here is David's response. In the most intimate fashion possible. Again, it's like a journal entry. You get to open David's diary right here. So how does he respond to his own shortcomings? How does he respond when he doesn't meet the standard of God? The first thing that we have to note in this, in this whole psalm is the very first verse. David's opening statement. It highlights the character of God. It tells us who God is. He says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant passion, compassion. Blot out my rebellion. You, you cannot go any further 
until you understand what's going on in this very first verse. You cannot respond to sin, it's impossible, without first the character of God. Because it's the character of God that allows you the opportunity to respond to your sin. Romans 3.23 makes it very clear that we're all sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells you that the wages of sin is death. Game over. So we sin, I sin, you sin, and all that I'm due is the complete wrath of God. There is no response. The only way that a response is allowed is because of what David says about God. He says, Be gracious to me according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. He's saying, This is who you are. This is not who I say you are. This is who you say you are. And if this is who you say you are, then please have mercy on me. It's not possible if God isn't who God says he was. In Exodus 34, I think this is where David's drawing drawing this from, but, but God passes before Moses and tells Moses exactly who he is. It says, The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name. I'm telling you, Moses, who I am. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving sin, rebellion. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. So you can see right here, we serve a God that is merciful and gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love, and He's faithful and forgiving. And if He was not all of these things, then there is no response to sin other than His wrath. But praise be to God that that's not where it ends. He's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, and faithful and forgiving. So we have an opportunity to come before Him and beg His mercy. But we have to understand, too, that He's just. He's not going to let it slide. Right? Death is a stiff penalty, but that's what we deserve. Again, we only deserve the wrath of God, but that's not what we receive. Or even better, we receive forgiveness because of the character and nature of God, because of what He did through Jesus Christ, because of the opportunity that He gives us to be made clean. So we can talk about, we can talk all day long about this is how you're supposed to respond to sin, but you're never going to respond the correct way to sin if you don't understand who God is. And understanding who God is is reason alone. I don't care what your life circumstances are. Understanding the nature and the character of God and who He is is reason alone to worship. So we know that David was called a man after God's own heart. right? We know that David wasn't sinless. Why did he write this journal entry? Because he'd just fallen short, right? He'd just fallen into sin with Bathsheba. He was confronted with it by Nathan. And what was his reaction? His initial reaction was sincere confession and repentance. He didn't excuse his sin. He didn't ignore his sin. He addressed it head on. He was aware of what he had done. Right In verse 3 he says, I'm conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. It's all I can think about. I can't get it out of my mind. I recognize what I've done. And again, we go back to that first, the first step in an appropriate response is sin's got to be dealt with. From Nathan's end, he recognized sin and it needed to be confronted. When we, when we see sin, is it, do we confront it? Or do we let it slide? And then on David's end, when he committed sin, what did he do? He immediately dealt with it and confessed and repented. I can't let it slide. Because here's the reality of the situation. It's going to be dealt with. It's going to be dealt with. I can deal with it now, or I'll be forced to deal with it later. The next thing we see is that David... He didn't only recognize his sin, but he really understood what sin was. In verse 4, he says, Against you, you alone have I sinned, 
and done this evil in your sight. Here's a better way to understand that. Against you, God, you alone are the eternal and holy God. That's who you are. And against you have I sinned. David wasn't rejecting, he didn't misunderstand his sin against Bathsheba. He recognized, I've done Bathsheba wrong. He didn't fail to recognize that I've done Uriah wrong. Yeah, I sent Uriah to the front lines. Yes, I sinned against Uriah. But David recognized the grievous nature of his sin against God. Sure, we sin against other people, but at the end of the day, what we do is we sin against the one true creator God. If you think about your dad or your mom or just your family, if you think about just the concept of your last name, I, I can't speak for you, but I know as a, as a young person, and even now, but especially when I, as a young person when you're in the same house, you know, if, if I go out and make a bad decision, yeah, it makes me look bad. But it makes my dad look bad. It makes my last name look bad. When people see what I've done, they're going to naturally think about my father. They're going to naturally think about my mother. Comments will be made like, what are they doing in that home? I guess they're not teaching him anything. And what David's recognizing is the same thing. I've sinned against God. And, and, and above anybody else, I'm the king. I'm, I'm the one that God has chosen to represent Him in this nation. And so when I sin, when I, fall, when I fall short of the standard, I'm dragging God's name through the mud. It's a sin against Him. Above anything else, it's a sin against Him. That's what, that's what sin is. That's a true understanding of sin. So if I'm gonna, that's the second thing. If I'm going to respond to sin appropriately, I have to recognize what it really is. It's not just an affront against somebody else. It's not just me doing somebody else wrong. It's me spitting in the face of God. And David recognized that. We go on in verse 5 and 6. He says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. He recognized who he was. David recognized his sinful nature. In sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean that his mother conceived him illegitimately. That's not what that means. It just means that he understands the frailty of humanity. He understands that we're all sinners, that he was a sinner. You don't have to teach your kids how to steal something. You don't teach your kids how to lie. Right? Nobody does that. We had some cookies up here a minute ago, right? You put cookies in the kitchen. You say, they're in the cookie jar. Don't get in the cookie jar. You don't have to teach your kid to do this number, and sneak in there and grab a cookie. You don't have to teach that. David recognizes, this is who I am. I'm a sinner. But David calls on God to change him. He recognizes who he is, but he also recognizes, this is not who I want to be. This is not who God has called me to be. That's why in verse 10 he says, God, create a clean heart in me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. What's steadfast mean? We test the CCHS education here. What what does steadfast mean? Yeah, constant, firm. Don't don't change me. Don't let me chase after all of these things and not you. Creating me a heart that's steadfast and firm that plants its flag on your name. That's what David's saying. I recognize who I am, but I also know who I want to be. And I can't be that if you don't change me. So an appropriate response to sin, number three, you have to desire a change. You have to desire a change. And again, God's the only one that can make that change happen. That's why he goes on and he begs for mercy from God. He recognizes his role. He recognizes, I know who I am, and I know who you are. I, I don't have the ability to change this. You're going to have to change it. He says, please 
God, don't give me the death penalty that I deserve. He, David knew the law. We were just in Psalm 119 talking about the law. David knew the law. And under the law, what he had done, the sentence was death. You can go back to Genesis 9-6, Exodus 21-12, Leviticus 20-10. All three of those scriptures. This is what you did, David, and this is the sentence, death. And David is calling upon God, have mercy on me. I know what I'm due, but please don't give it to me. And he calls on, in verse 7, he calls upon God to purify me with hyssop. Now, it's 2021, and you're reading an English Bible, and it's really easy to just go right past that. But you need to stop and ask the question, what's hyssop? What's hyssop? It's a shrub in ancient times. It's associated with cleansing, but here's the more important thing. We're getting, we're getting ready to talk about Passover for the next couple of weeks. The hyssop branch was what the Israelites used in Egypt when they were asked to spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. So they took the branch, they dipped it in the blood, and they put it over the doorpost. What they used was the hyssop branch, right? And it was a marker that this, this home is clean. This home will be passed over. And what is David asking God to do? Please, dear God, pass over me. Because I'm due death, just like all those homes. And yet, when we put that on the doorpost, they were passed over. So he's saying, take that same branch, man, and mark me, just like those homes were marked, so that I'll be passed over and not given what I'm due. He's asking for protection. He's asking for purity. And he recognizes that God is the only one that can provide that purity. It says in Psalm 103, 12, that, that God can take your sins and he can cast them as far as the east is from the west. That's the same concept as eternity. Like you can't even grasp, what does that even mean? As far as the east is from the west. As far as you can go in that direction and that direction. And never be seen again. So the fourth step is you have to recognize God as the purifier. That's what David, he calls out and begs God for mercy because God is the only one that can purify him and save him from what he is due. So you can, you can prance around and you can continually try to fix your own mess, but it's never going to be fixed. That's not, that's not the right response to my screw-up, to my sin. The only response is, I recognize God is the purifier. He's the one that can make me whole. He goes on. And he says, Don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. It's interesting that David would say that. Why would David say that? Well, who was king before David? Saul was. And, and David watched God remove his spirit from Saul. He saw what Saul became when he didn't have God's spirit on him. And David's saying, I don't want to be that. I want your presence always with me. That the spirit, it left, Saul, it left Saul because Saul rejected God. And David's saying, I've screwed up. I'm confessing my screw up, but I'm not rejecting you. Please do not leave me. He wanted the presence of God to be in his life, and he recognized that his sin was a hindrance to that, and he wanted the, he wanted the remedy. It's very, it's very similar. Um, I, I am a self-professed weirdo uh, because at least at this point in my life, I think that Exodus is probably my favorite book in the Bible. And you don't, I don't, I've told that to a couple of people, and they're like, what's wrong with that guy? But uh, in Exodus 34, it's the same picture. It's the same picture. When, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and, and the Israelites are messing around with the golden calf, and so Moses turns right back around and he goes up the mountain. And God says, listen, Moses, I'm a faithful God and I'm a, and I'm a God of my word. And I told you I was going to give you the promised land. But I've seen enough of this garbage. And I'm going to send you, but I ain't coming. Because I'm not going to be associated with this filth. And what happens? The same thing that we see happen here. David said, please God, don't leave me. Moses looks at God and says, listen, if you ain't going, we ain't going. 
Because what is it that marks us? What is it that makes us different? What is it that purifies us? What is it that makes us special? It's your presence. It's not some land. It's not all this milk and honey that you're talking about. It's you. And so if you're not going, we're not going. David's saying, please do not leave me because you are what makes me distinct. So if we want to respond to sin appropriately, we have to have this desire to constantly abide in Christ. We must never want to leave his side. It's, it's the same thing that we were talking about at the very beginning. Peter on the water. If I'm abiding in him, I'm not sinking. I'm not asking for trouble. But when I take my eyes off of Christ, I'm going to run into problems. David had lived that firsthand. And now he's saying, please do not leave me. It's interesting, too, that David didn't want God to forgive his sin. He wanted him to change him, right? He, Restore me to the joy of your salvation. He wanted, to ch- he wanted change, but he didn't want change just for him. He says, help me bring others back to you. So David's request, this cry from David, is not a selfish cry. He recognizes, especially as the king, but I would argue heavily that this is applicable to every one of us in the room today. He recognizes that my actions have an impact. One of the greatest, if there's anything that my parents ever taught me, is that every action you take has an effect on somebody else. And one of the greatest lies of our culture today is that you can do what you want to do and you can do what you want to do and it doesn't affect anybody. Well, what harm is that? Everything you do has an effect on somebody else. And David recognized that my sin, especially as the representative, as the chosen king of Israel, will lead other people astray. Well, if the king can do that, why can't I do it? He says, God, I want you to change me so that I can help bring others back to you. Don't just change me for my sake, but change me so that you can use me as a tool to bring other people closer to you. So if we want to respond to sin appropriately, it has to be done with a heart for others as well. Then the last thing that we see is that David was a man of thanksgiving. He trusted in God and he sets himself to praise him. It says he's going to joyfully sing... Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Notice, notice something right here. God, there's no response. God has not responded yet. But David is so certain of the God he serves that he, he's going to worship because he knows what the outcome is going to be. He has faith that God is who he says he is, that he's faithful, that he's abundant in compassion, that he is a God of mercy. That he will blot out his sin. And David says, I'm going to sing your name. I'm going to declare your praise. He says, he says, I understand that what you're truly after is my broken and humbled heart. It's interesting here that he says, you don't want to sacrifice. What's he talking about? If you go all the way back through the Old Testament, especially the first five books, I mean, all you see is sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. And now David's saying, you don't want to sacrifice? He says, you don't want one or I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Yeah, God wants to sacrifice, but the sacrifice that he wants is that you are humble and that you will seek him out with a broken heart that is committed to him. Even the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, they serve no purpose if the heart's not right. So the the last thing here, if we're going to appropriately respond to sin, we have to be humble, we have to be full of thanksgiving, and most of all, we have to worship. Again, that takes you back to the very first thing. God's character alone is the only reason that I'm allowed to respond to sin anyway. Because all that I'm doing is His wrath. But God being who God is, He allows me an opportunity to humble myself, to praise Him, to worship Him, and to have a heart full of thanksgiving. 
Because that's what he's after. He's after my heart. So this morning, speak to a couple different groups here. As a believer in Christ, if I'm in the room this morning and I'm a believer in Christ, the question is, am I playing the long game? Am I maintaining a focus on Christ and the eternal reward that awaits me? Because Jesus said in his very own words, if you do that, you'll bear fruit. You'll bear fruit for my kingdom if you abide in me. I know Dale's a big fan of Pilgrim's Progress, and if you haven't read that book, read it. But Pilgrim is on this, he's on this mission to get to the celestial city, and he is so locked in on where he's trying to get. This is the eternal reward that God has for me, that he, he stays the course. And he encounters all these people on the way that are focused on all these other things that so easily get off the narrow path. And the only reason that Pilgrim is able to stay on that narrow path is because he's focused on the prize. And that's what you're called to do. Don't chase after the one cookie when you can have the case upon cases upon cases of cookie that await you in eternity. And here's the truth about one cookie. One cookie never satisfies. Never satisfies. I mean, I'd love to meet the person in here. You're a very special person if, you, if the person in here that sat down and ate one Oreo or one potato chip. Like, they don't exist. Why? Because it never satisfies, because I want the next one. I know, I sat down and ate five of those last night before I ever even brought them in. <laughs> so you chase after the one cookie, you're never satisfied. The reality is that we're going to sin, right? Even as a believer, you're going to fall short. But how we react is crucial. How we respond to our sin is crucial. Second Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Do you understand the gravity of what's being said right there? God making his appeal through you. If he's making his appeal through you, what does his appeal say when you walk out of that door? How do you address your sin? Do you confess it and repent, or do you hide and excuse it? Do you understand it as an offense to God, or do you just see it as this minor offense against somebody else, no big deal? Do we run from it, and do we run from God, or do we run to God when we're confronted with our sin? See, David ran to God. Nathan smacked him around, and he immediately ran to God. That's the right response. And then do we trust God's character enough to praise Him even in the midst of dealing with our sin, right? Because our sin has consequences. Even though we're forgiven, our sins have consequences. But do I trust God enough and do I trust His character enough to praise Him? 1 John 1, 9 and 10 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10 says, if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar, and his word's not in us. How you deal with sin matters. Maybe, so the second group, maybe you're here this morning and you've never, you've never responded to your sin ever. Scripture calls that being dead in your sins. We looked at Romans 6.23 earlier. It tells us that the cost is death, physical death, spiritual death. Spiritual death is just eternal separation from God. It's a life of torment as opposed to the life that God designed for you to live. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, the life that you couldn't live, so that He could suffer death on a cross that would serve as your punishment for sin and provide a way for you to avoid what you're due and give you an opportunity to claim eternal life with Him. That's something that you can do today by responding to your sin, by confessing your shortcomings and committing your life to Jesus. And the truth is, maybe that doesn't make perfect sense. Maybe that doesn't make perfect sense to you this morning. But somewhere deep inside you know, I need to act. I've got to do something. If that's you, we'd love to talk to you this morning. Don't wait to deal with your sin until it's too late. Ray showed me something this morning, didn't even know that it was going to apply, but he showed me something this morning, a quote that said, most people who wait till the 11th hour to get right with God die at 10.30. <laughs> Don't wait until it's too late to deal with your sin. 
God has brought you here this morning for a purpose. It's not random chance. If you've got that little tug in your heart right now, it's not random chance. He's speaking to you. He's calling for you, maybe for the first time, to commit your life to Him. Or maybe He's calling you this morning just to walk closer. To give up this chase for immediate gratification for all of these other things, these own solutions that you have, and to seek Him wholeheartedly. And here's, here's the last thing I'll tell you this morning. A month ago, Psalm 119 called us to revival. Revival will not take place if sin's not dealt with. So, so we can't speak out of both sides of our mouth. We can't say on one side, I want revival in this place, and then on the other side, not deal with the sin that's in this place. May this place be a place that treats sin seriously and longs for a closer walk with our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the example that David has set before us. Lord, please forgive us for all of our sins, our trespasses, the ways that we fall short daily. But Lord, may you stir up in us a desire to have the appropriate response to our mistakes, a desire to seek your face, to abide in you, to recognize the offense that it is against you, Lord, to recognize that, that our actions as believers have an impact on the world around us. We so desire that when people see us, that they'd see you. And if we don't respond correctly to our sin, they will never see you. Lord, we want this place to be a place that is sparked to revival. But that requires that we deal with our sin directly and appropriately, and seek your face, your mercy, your forgiveness, and your love. Lord, most of all, we, th we thank you for the, just the opportunity to respond to our sin, the opportunity that's given to us only because of who you are and what you've done through Jesus Christ. Lord, may we never take that for granted. And may, may we desire to play the long game, to seek after you and, and the eternal reward that you have promised us so that it drives every step that we take each and every day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.